Brothers and sisters, I hope that you can truly say that the mercy of Christ is your source of joy. Isn't that cool? What a moment to rest in. My name is Mark. I serve as one of the pastors here. I'm so glad you're here with us at Parkview today. I'm not going to take time to review where we've been just because there's a lot of territory to cover today. So we're going to jump in at Acts chapter 13, verse 13. So you can turn there if you would and be ready. Acts 13, verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. They went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and from the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Would you join me in prayer? Father, again, we come before you, and we just ask now that you would just be in our midst. And Father, we just pray that you'd be exalted in our hearts as well as in our songs. Lord, would you uh, glorify yourself today? Lord, as we look at this text, we ask you to guide us. May your spirit speak and move mightily in our hearts and lives and in this place. Lord, we pray for East Campus today. We ask your blessing upon them as they gather. And Lord, we just thank you for uh, that member, those members of our family there. We just ask your blessing upon them. Father, for those who are preaching the good news of Christ around the world, we ask your blessing upon them. We thank you for those who are missionaries, especially the ones we have relationships with. Would you honor them and bless them even today? Give them a day of encouragement and rest. Father, we ask now that you would just take this time and have your way with it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Again, just to look at the map, to get a little bit of context, if you look at this, the journey, we'll see now today the arrows uh, three and four. If you kind of look and follow those, that helps you a little bit get an idea what's going on in this particular part of the Acts of the Apostles. John Mark leaves them and returns to Jerusalem. This is interesting why he would take that journey and go all the way there and then return to Jerusalem. It makes you wonder if he got on the wrong boat or if it was cheaper with a layover or whatever happened that made him do that to go all the way up there and then leave. And we don't know what it was. Did something happen on the trip that uh, discouraged him, frightened him, or something happened that made him want to leave? And we could wonder if it was related to some, some health struggles that Paul was having. We don't see that here in, in Acts 13, but if you look over with me at Galatians chapter 4, we see a little bit more uh, about that uh, as we read here. Look at verse 12 of Galatians 4. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a, body, a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? 
Uh, it would seem that uh, Paul is in some rough condition here, and we simply don't know what it was. Some suggested that maybe he had contracted some form of mal- malaria-type illness that was relatively prevalent in that region of Perga in that era. And maybe that was it. Some suggested that it was an eyesight issue in that they're willing to give their eyes to him as he describes there. It may have been a weakness or illness or disease that maybe affected his eyes. Who knows, maybe that encountering Christ on the road Damascus did some permanent damage to his eyes. Perhaps an illness that causes the eye issue. We don't know. Although Luke mentions John Mark's departure only in passing here, in today's text, we look a a little bit ahead and then we see it becomes very significant. If you jump ahead with me, we'll get there in, in more detail later, but look with me at Acts 15, verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commanded by the brothers by the grace of the Lord, to the grace of the Lord, they went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So obviously, it's just mentioned quickly here in chapter 13, but it's a relatively significant issue, and again, we'll address it in a little, in a little bit. And back to our text, they travel on to Antioch. This is Antioch, Pisidia. It's important to mention which one it is. There are multiple Antiochs at that time, somewhere around 16. So this is a specific one, obviously. And so they are starting their time there with the recent loss of John Mark and Paul's health struggles, whatever those were. Add to that difficulty the rugged territory that they're traveling through. Uh, hot and humid terrain and, and environment. And because of the territory, it, they were at high risk of robbery and attacks because predators could just hide in various places. Any one of these things may have contributed to Mark's desire to depart. But when the, then they, they arrive, they go to the synagogue, and there they go. Again, oh, that's their typical thing, to go to the synagogue first, and they're there they encounter the Jews and proselytes. And after hearing the scripture read, they're invited to share with the group. I think that's noteworthy here. They go in and they attend. They're just a part of it. They're listening to the scripture being read, and then they are invited then to share with everyone. Look with me now at verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, And you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. 
And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found David, or found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. It's interesting to, to note here that this is Paul's first sermon on record, and it kind of echoes that of Stephen's. It would have been interesting to, to know what Paul's even thinking as he remembers Stephen giving such a speech, and then he gives the approval to have Stephen put to death. But he starts out saying, men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. It's important to note here that, that Paul wisely starts his speech giving the historical narrative of Israel, and he does that to build a foundation on which to place the glorious news that he's about to share with them. Understand that the definition of the need for the good news of the gospel becomes a great foundation of relevance on which to share it. I want you to think about that. Defining the need. And, and what he's doing here is he's, he's going to let them know that he understands them and he's going to be clear in, in sharing his history of it. And he takes, through, takes them back through the history of Israel, which he knows well, he studied well. Again, he's sharing with them at this point nothing that would have been unknown to them when he talks about the history of Israel. They knew it well. It generates support for what he's presenting. He's saying, listen, uh, our people were slaves in Israel, and they're crying out for deliverance. God heard their cries. And we know he raises up Moses to, to free them, to be the deliverer that he uses and they wander 40 years in the wilderness because of their sin. And then God gave them victory over the Canaanite nations. They received the promised land. They had judges to rule over them, and we know from judges that was a mess, wasn't it? And we kept hearing everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the prophet Samuel and then they want a king, don't they? They had a theocracy. God was their king, their ruler, but they wanted an earthly king. Samuel, the prophet, appoints Saul as king. He reigns for 40 years. Saul is a disappointment, isn't he? Then David is appointed by Samuel. I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Again, for, for Paul, understanding his audience uh, is important, and, and they would have been tracking with him now uh, up until this point. But it's right about here in Paul's speech in verse 23 where it gets a little bit iffy in Acts 20, uh, 13, 23. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Paul knew he couldn't just spring the good news of Christ upon them without reminding them of, of the fact that it was promised. A Savior, Jesus, as he promised. This is where the message gets controversial for this crowd. But Paul reminded them that it was foretold by the prophets. He's saying, listen, this shouldn't have been a surprise to you. This is how it's supposed to happen. 
We understand that. Look at verse 24. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers he has fulfilled to us in their children by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the Holy One, the holy and blessed, or I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not your, let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Paul's message now shifts toward that which is current, which is relevant now, he's saying. Uh, Remember John the baptizer? He said, what do you say that I am? And he said, I'm not the Messiah. However, he was the one following me, right? But, But for me, I'm not even good enough to touch his feet. It's very important because we see in that statement, John was being sure to reduce himself as low as possible so as not to obscure any proper view of Christ. John makes sure he's not in the way. As a man of considerable size, I try to be mindful of the people who have to stand behind me in a crowd who might struggle to see over me or around me. Understand that John knew that his task was to introduce Christ. He was not the headliner of the show. He communicated this even further when his disciples came to him and said, listen, the people aren't coming to us to be baptized anymore. Look, they're, they're all coming to Jesus and to his disciples over there. They were concerned about this, that John was losing his traction, if you will. And John's answer was, he must increase and I must decrease. 
realize that Paul is speaking to people who likely admire John, and here is Paul reminding them that John himself acknowledged Jesus is the Lamb of God. Can I just make a side note here and say that I get very concerned when Christian leaders make too much of themselves. And and I would suggest to you that it's very common in our culture today. The simple fact is, we are to make much of Jesus. It's about lifting high his name. It's not about exalting ourselves. Any Christian leader who understands the word and understands grace realizes that they're nothing apart from Jesus. Paul takes it from here to the salvation message. He says, listen, our Jewish friends in Jerusalem not only met the long-awaited Messiah, but they missed him and they rejected him. If that wasn't bad enough, they ultimately put him to death. They had him executed and laid him in a tomb. It's interesting here as you read this because Paul does some talk here where he's aligning himself with the Jews, our fathers, and all those sorts of things. He's saying things that connects him with them. But in this part, he's, he's, it's contrasted in that he's saying they didn't recognize him. They put him to death. They laid him in a tomb. You see, they killed him, but death couldn't keep its grip on him. And I read some of these narrative scriptures, I find myself just wishing I could have been there to kind of watch the room. I wish I could have seen the reactions to what Paul was saying and, and how these people were reacting in the synagogue that day. There are certainly times when, when people begin to squirm and react to something significant or something controversial that is being said, right? And this is no doubt one of those moments where, where that would have happened for many of those present. I, I envision them, as Paul's saying th- these things, starting to go, <gasps> or, or, or gasp a little, or sit back a little bit, and, and they're, they're looking around, maybe trying to make eye contact with other people who they think would agree with them, right? And have that kind of moment, right? Seeing if others are upset. Many years ago, I'd taken a team of our student ministry leaders to a conference. And it was a big conference. There was about five or 6,000 youth workers there. And it was a pretty high-energy thing. Got people going. Chris Tomlin had done the worship for it. Uh, the praise time was just all building up to this. And the speaker got up. I'm not going to mention his name. But he began to draw everybody in with what he was saying, and he was a good presenter. And then he started to say some things that sounded a little bit weird. And then he went there a little further. And he was ultimately discrediting much of the New Testament. And he had a dynamic way of saying it. And there were some people in the crowd going, ah! And other people were going, whoa, what just happened? He was making false statements. And our team's looking at each other like, what are we doing here? We had to go out and talk about it. It was heresy. 
Some in Paul's audience were likely feeling that way. They're going, wait a minute, he can't say that. But what Paul was saying was true. Paul, empowered by the Holy Spirit, continues and supports his claim. He says, listen, Jesus appeared to many. And there are witnesses. God raised him to life and and we saw him. What we're sharing with you today is true. And he quotes Psalms. Then essentially he says in a nice way, in a gentle way, King David, you know, the one we all love and we reference as our great king. He was a great king, but he died. And he's still dead. He decayed. But Jesus died and is alive. Never to experience corruption or decay. He's saying, listen, people, we have a new king, a descendant of David, but he is the king. Then the way of salvation, look at verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. If people hadn't been stunned yet by what he had said, they were certainly stunned by his words now. Jesus offers freedom. He meets the demands of the law for you. You understand he's not just pointing out how wrong the Jewish leaders were about Jesus. He's not just pointing out their guilt over his execution. But he's also declaring Jesus' victory over the grave and that forgiveness of sins is provided by him through faith. And freed by him from everything that you couldn't be free from in the law of Moses. What your sacred faith, your laws and rules couldn't do, Christ does for you. The wait is over. The Messiah has come and purchased our freedom. Faith in Jesus provides justification, freeing us from the condemnation that came from failing to meet the demands of the law. Verse 41 is a quotation from Habakkuk 1.5. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you wouldn't have believed if told. Paul's sending them a warning, much like the prophet gave to Judah that they would fall to Babylon. Paul's saying, 
do not be among the unbelieving Jews. Look and see, wonder and be amazed, believe. And look at the response, look at verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them in the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles." So the word of the Lord commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the, of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the de devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they drove them out of the district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. They share it again in the next Sabbath. People want to hear. They want to hear more. And they're going, listen, we have friends that need to hear. I know some Gentiles who will be amazed by this message, some Jews. And Luke records that almost the whole city gathered, and we got to stop and go, wait a minute, what? Some have suggested that the city's population may have been upwards of 50,000 people. Now, research or excavations have indicated that the biggest arena in that time would have held five to 6,000 people. So it's hard to comprehend exactly what Luke is communicating here. We just simply know that without question, it was a huge response. And we say, why that huge response? I love the writing of G. Campbell Morgan on this. He, he writes, how was it that a message like this so profoundly moved the city? Because it was a message that touched the deepest things of human life, the truth about God, the question of an age-binding life, a life that cannot be destroyed, a life that persists through every age and possesses it, but is never influenced by the passing of an age, the fact of sin and the remission of sins, justification. The address of Paul in the synagogue was not occupied with material things. He did not discuss physical culture, food reform, dress reform, or housing reform. His message was not one that dealt preeminently with the questions of the intellect. He, he did not dis discuss the differences at which we've looked and of which we, he was conscious between Hebrewism and Hellenism. He entered into no political discussion as to the question of Roman authority. He dealt with the central facts of every human life, God, life, and sin. 
I do not suggest that this man was ignoring the mental mood in the midst of which he found himself or that he was uninterested in the mental processes going on around him. He did not hold in contempt the things of the material life, food, raiment, and dwellings. He did not stay to deal with things accidental and transient, the things of every human life, but passed to the inspirational centers when he spoke of God, of age-abiding life, and of sin, and the possibility of true remission, he was dealing with facts which forevermore make their appeal to men, arrest their attention, produce unrest, produce division, intellectual division, emotional division, volitional division. These are the things that produce effects to be found all throughout the book of Acts. A synagogue overflowing with people. The line for the women's restroom stretched for blocks, let me tell you. (laughs) Can you just imagine with me for a minute, brothers and sisters, that Parkview's biggest problem isn't a financial shortfall, it isn't staff concerns, it isn't relational issues, it isn't a fear of the flood or elder disagreements. But rather, Parkview's greatest problem is we cannot seat the people that come. That our worship team gets worn out after 16 services on a weekend. That the parking lot cannot handle the traffic. The plumbing system can't keep up. Great problems, right? Verse 48 says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. What a response. Clearly, those who had heard the week before had invited people to come and see, come and hear for yourselves this good news about Jesus. Once again, we find that these unbelieving Jews are jealous. Jealous. Trying to stop the advancement of the gospel. Trying to contradict Paul. But Paul had a ready defense in the scripture, didn't he? Gentiles respond with rejoicing. There's joy. They're glorifying God, and the word of God spread. What a worship service that would have been. Can you imagine? All these people coming to the first time realization that they could be freed from their sins. For Gentiles to to now understand that they're welcomed in, the message is for them too. They're no longer the outsiders. And the theme verse of Acts, Acts 1-8, is becoming true. They're being witnesses. They're sharing the good news. They're empowered by the Spirit of God. But the unbelieving Jews stir people up. They're riling up the prominent women of the community, the prominent men. And ultimately and foolishly, they chase Paul and Barnabas out. 
Can you imagine? We can, because we live in an unbelieving culture, don't we? They chase them out. And we're told they shook the dust off their feet as they went to Iconium. That is a strong demonstration against the unbelieving Jews. If you remember from the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' instructions said to them, to say, even the dust of your own town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you that it'll be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. The wipe your, the, the dust off your shoes or your feet serves as a curse against them. Faithful Jews, when they would return home from from Gentile areas, they would wipe that dust off of their feet so as to not bring even the dust of a Gentile territory into their culture because they didn't want even the dust. They didn't want to corrupt their culture. So for Paul and Barnabas to do that to them was a strong, strong statement against them. Tough time, right? being driven out of a city, and yet we read, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. They're filled with joy. What was the other option, to be jealous? Again, I love what G. Campbell Morgan said, and I'll read another quote to you. It's just beautiful. Again, note the effect of the Christian message. It is life unto life or death unto death. It produces jealousy or joy, blasphemy or belief. The spirit of hell which persecutes or the spirit of holiness which seeks to save. The preaching of the cross forevermore appeals to the intellect of men and divides them. It stirs the emotional life, producing opposite and conflicting emotions. It storms the will and demands belief or blasphemy. Isn't that great? You ever find yourself wondering how people could be so opposed to the good news of the gospel. We shouldn't be surprised by it. Sadly, there will be people who remain on the outside jealous of a joy they cannot understand because they do not know the Savior. Let me just wind down with this by saying faith And Jesus Christ provides justification, freeing us from the condemnation that came from failing to meet the demands of the law. So can I get personal this morning and just ask you, do you know the joy of having been justified? Declared as righteous. Have you been declared as righteous because you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? That's the news of the gospel. That there's a Messiah who came. He lived without sin. He was the righteous one. And he died 
on your behalf and in your place. He took that condemnation upon himself, offering you his righteousness so that you would be justified, declared as righteous because of him, not because of you, but because of your faith in him. Folks, I hope that is a source of joy for you this morning.